Amen. You know, as we were singing that, that last song, I just had this overwhelming sense of gratitude again that uh, I get to do what I do. Thank you, church. I was just sitting there thinking, thank you that I get to be in the Word and then come on Sundays and be in the Word with you. I'm just grateful. I'm really grateful for that privilege. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I was, that's what I was looking for. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 14. Now, when my kids were little, they used to come home from my parents' house and they would say something like, um, you know, Daddy, Grandpa told me. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, you know, when my dad was just a dad before he was a, a grandfather, he was a reasonably trustworthy man. And, um, and then once he became a grandpa, that character quality of trustworthiness it just seemed to kind of, kind of diminish a bit. So, you know, they would come home and they'd say, Grandpa told me, and through time I became more and more and more skeptical about what I was about to hear. Now, again, in full disclosure, this is true not just of my dad, but also of Trissy's dad. So if it was Grandpa told me or Poppy told me, I begin to think, mm, probably not, right? On the other hand, if they said Grandma told me or Grammy told me, I knew it would probably be true. And you say, oh, you're, you know, Brian, you were so prejudiced. I'm telling you, that is not prejudice. That is wisdom. Right? That's just wisdom. We all have sources that we go to for truth. And if we have discerned well, we will get truth and we will get wisdom and we will know how to live our lives in such a way that we honor and glorify God and we finish well. Right? We live well and we finish well. As Paul is about to end his final words to Timothy, he says, Timothy, let me take you back to the source. Trust the source. It's true. It has given you guidance for life. It will continue to give you guidance for life. Timothy, go back to the source and trust it. Read with me in verse 13. Let's begin in verse 13. Paul says, But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Paul's final words of his final words to Timothy, and he ends it with just a string of commands, right? A string of imperatives. It's kind of like when your kids are walking out the door, right? You don't have much time, so you just bam, bam, you're going to hit them. And Paul's just going to hit Timothy with a string of commands. The first is this, in this final set of commands, continue. So Timothy, continue, it's a Greek word, meno, it means abide. One of John, the apostle's favorite words, he would say, Jesus would say, abide in me. Stay intimately connected with me. And Paul says, Timothy, stay intimately connected with what you have learned and become convinced of. Trust the source. Remember even who you got all of this from. Your grandmother Lois, your mother Eunice, you got it from me. And what were we speaking from? We were speaking from the source, that is the sacred writings, the word of God. Trust the word of God. Trust the word of God. And Paul is going to give Timothy and give us three reasons that we can trust the word of God. The first is this. The word of God is inspired. Read with me again verse 16. Paul writes, 
All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16, pretty much any 3.16 in the Bible, go ahead and memorize it, right? This is a, this is a critical verse. This is, this is a foundational verse for our faith. Right? The, the inspiration of the word of God is one of the most fundamental doctrines that we believe in. It's foundational for everything else that we believe. We believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. This word for inspiration actually comes from a Greek word, theopneustos, which means literally God breathed. Right? God breathed. The word inspiration carries this connotation of God breathing into something like God breathed into the pages here. But really the Greek idea is this. It's that God breathed out, right? Out of the heart and mind of God, God spoke and his breath, his words carried his truth through the heart and mind of man onto the printed page. That's inspiration. God spoke and he spoke through men and they wrote, 2 Peter chapter 1 says, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's inspiration. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke, but they were speaking from God. Right, so God spoke out, and he spoke his heart and his mind out through these men. So in their language, in their grammar, in their syntax, in their vocabulary, Within the cultural settings that they had, they took up pen and paper, and when they began to write, they were writing the Word of God. This is reflected in one of Peter's first sermons, Acts chapter 4. He said, The Lord, by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said. And then he quotes what David wrote. He says, What David wrote is actually the Word of God. It's God, the Father, the Lord, breathing out through the breath that is the Spirit speaking into and through the heart and mind of man, and they recorded, consequently, the word of God. What they spoke was then the word of God. So theologians speak of inspiration uh, in, in two terms. First, it's verbal, and second, it's plenary. Verbal inspiration means this, every word. Right? Every word, each and every word. The very words of the Bible are the word of God. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. The smallest letter is the letter Yod in the Hebrew Bible. It represents the sound Y. That's the smallest. It's not even a full-size letter. It's just a, a small letter. And the smallest stroke is a piece on a letter. Jesus said, if you want to know what is inspired in the word of God, it's down to the smallest letter and actually a piece of a letter. He's speaking hyperbolically to say the words. Right? The words themselves. Verbal inspiration. Second inspiration is plenary, meaning the the entirety of the Bible is inspired by God. Not certain parts, or certain parts more inspired than other parts, but the entire thing. Psalm chapter 119, verse 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. It's the whole thing. The entirety, and even down to the smallest words. All breathed out from the mind of God. Now, the result is this. What you have in your hands is the word of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. When you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Paul says, when we spoke and when the prophets spoke, they were speaking to you not their own words, they were actually speaking to you 
the word of God. Now, as a result, the word of God is inerrant or without error. If the God of truth speaks, he speaks without error. Inerrancy is another foundational doctrine for us, the inspiration of Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture. Inerrancy is defined like this by theologian Paul Feinberg. He said, Inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, the Scriptures in their original autographs, properly interpreted, will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with social, physical, or life sciences. It's all true, and it is all without error. If you're a member of Grace Bible Church, you probably have our Constitution sitting on your nightstand so that you can frequently go back and refer to it, right? Because it's, it's, it's a spellbinding document. Now, our Constitution says this. We believe that God superintended the authors of scriptures so that using their own individual literary styles, they composed and recorded without error God's revelation to man in the words of the original manuscripts. That is, they spoke in their language and culture, but it was the word of God. And since it's the word of God, it is, in fact, without error. It is without error. So what? Why does it actually matter? Why do we say that that these are foundational doctrines that we cannot surrender? Why does it actually matter? What matters for this reason, uh, we can't see God, right? God in his essence is invisible. That means we can't know God by what we see or by taste or touch or hearing. We can't use empirical method to understand who God is. God, for us to know him, has to reveal himself. Our faith rests on, on revelation. And if God revealed himself to us and part of what he revealed was true and part of what he revealed was not true, how would we ever know? We would not be able to discern the truth from the air because we can't see God. John Wesley once observed this. He said, if there be any mistakes in the Bible, there may as well be a thousand. If there be one falsehood in that book, it did not come from the God of truth. Because if there were one falsehood, how would we know that not all of it is false? We would not be able to discern. So how do we know, in fact, that the Bible is without error? Let me give you just uh, three reasons. There are many, but let me give you three. The first is this. The word of God is painfully honest. It is unlike many other ancient documents. The word of God is painfully honest. There are a lot of things that are recorded actually in the Bible that the Bible doesn't affirm or promote. You learn this when you have little kids and you begin to read to them the book of Genesis. (laughs) You're like, whoa, (laughs) we better skip to the gospel of John or something. This is, man, there needs to be a rating on this book. There are a lot of things that are recorded. The Bible's not saying this is good, but it's just telling the truth. This is, in fact, what happened. In particular, the, the heroes of the Bible are shown for who they are in all of their humanity. Greatest king that Israel ever had was David. He, he also happened to be an adulterer and a murderer. But that's not glossed over. Moses was the greatest leader that Israel ever had, but he had a temper problem. And so at the very end of his life, when he is about to achieve what he has lived for, 120 years, he loses his temper, he strikes the rock, and God says, sorry, you're not worthy to take in my people to the promised land. Peter would be one of the early leaders of the church, and yet Peter had a problem with talking way too much and not having the character to back up his speech. So he was rebuked by the Lord, even described as a satanic element in Jesus' life at one point. 
And when it came down to it, although he had declared that he would stand with the Lord, he denied Jesus three times. And yet it is recorded exactly who he was and who Moses was and who David was. They're good qualities as well as they're bad. The Bible, the word of God, is painfully, brutally honest, even about its heroes, which is not something you normally see in most documents. It's certainly not what we hear in uh, our current political climate. <laughs> Lewis Berry Chafer, Bible is not such a book a man would write if he could or could write if he would. Right, this isn't what we would say. If we were writing our own biographies, we probably wouldn't be quite so honest, would we? Second, the word is historically trustworthy. The word is historically trustworthy. Now, to, to determine if a, a document is historically trustworthy, there are a couple of uh, lines of, of evidence that are looked at. First is internal evidence. That is, uh, how soon did the authors write after the event occurred? Right? In the case of the Bible, the, these authors are, are eyewitnesses of the fact. In other words, they're not hundreds of years later writing about events that they didn't actually see, which then tends to cause authors to mythologize a little bit about what they're seeing. No, these were eyewitnesses, and their testimony could be corroborated as their letters circulated, or it could be denied. Right? But they wrote in that particular time. Also, we look for external evidence. That is, uh, the things that they wrote, do they actually correspond with what other writers in that era were saying? about time and place and history and characters and geography? Does archaeology support what's being declared as truth in this book? So internal evidence as well as external evidence. Let me give you just one illustration. Externally, uh, from the world of archaeology. For years, it was, uh, it was argued by critics of the Bible that Moses could not have written the Law of Moses. First five books, the Pentateuch. He could not have written it because they said writing was not that uh, sophisticated in Moses' day, conservative scholars argue that the Exodus was about 1446 B.C., so Moses was writing around you know, 1500 B.C., and the argument was, no, writing was not nearly that sophisticated. Literature was not nearly that complex in that day. Then archaeologists dug up the Code of Hammurabi, which is actually written 200 years before the Law of Moses, and discovered, no, this document is actually equally complex and uh, such a high level of literature, demonstrating, you know, Moses could, in fact, have written the law of Moses, as tradition says. It was also argued that the biblical description of the Hittite empire was completely inaccurate. But then the capital of the Hittite empire was dug up, and we learned that the biblical description of its location and its geography and topography and its culture was exactly what had been described in the Bible. Now, over and over and over again, Secular writers and archaeology has demonstrated that the Bible is accurate. The Bible is true. In fact, you can get journals that are devoted just to biblical archaeology and its demonstration that what the Bible says is, in fact, true. Third, the word is prophetically accurate. There are literally hundreds of prophecies that have been made throughout the Bible. One of my favorites is Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel predicts the exact day of the triumphal entry, almost 600 years before Jesus walked into Jerusalem. We're actually going to look at that prophecy specifically next semester when we study prophetic events. And there are hundreds more of these. So the word of God is near. And how do we know? Well, it's painfully honest, it's historically trustworthy, and it is also prophetically accurate. Now, here's the problem. You may have noticed that in our, um, our definition of inerrancy, we said it, inerrancy applies to the original manuscripts or the original autographs, right? God 
uh, inspired. God spoke out, breathed out from his heart and mind, and he spoke through human authors. They picked up pen and page, and they began to write their language, their culture, but it was the word of God. But that inerrancy applies to the original document that they created. We don't have those anymore, do we? Right, the original was taken and it was copied and it was passed around to other churches and then it was copied more and passed around to other churches. So we don't have the original, we have copies. And as the copyists were moving around and making more and more and more copies, you know what? They didn't always get it 100% right. They didn't always accurately copy. So how do we know that the word of God is reliable? How do we know that those manuscripts that have been passed down through which we have translated our English Bible are actually reliable? I'm going to give you two reasons. First relates to the Old Testament. The Old Testament was copied meticulously and the New Testament was copied extensively. The Old Testament was copied meticulously and the New Testament was copied extensively. Uh, From about 400 B.C. to 200 A.D., there's a group of men called the Sophorim. The Sopharim were scribes. They copied word for word, letter for letter, the Old Testament. And they were painstakingly meticulous in their methodology of copying the Word of God. Let me read to you a description of the rules that they followed. An authentic copy must be the exemplar from which the transcriber ought not in the least to deviate. No word or letter, not even a yod, remember the the smallest letter, must be written from memory, the scribe not having looked at the codex before him, right? So he couldn't memorize a line and then write a line. He had to look letter, write it, letter, write it, letter, write it. Between every consonant, the space of a hair or thread must intervene. Between every new parasha or section, the breadth of nine consonants. Between every book, three lines. The fifth book of Moses must terminate exactly with a line, but the rest need not do so. Besides this, the copyist must sit in full Jewish dress, wash his whole body, not begin to write the name of God with a pen newly dipped in ink, and should a king address him while writing that name, he must not take any notice of the king. Okay, I only gave you uh, the second half of the set of rules and regulations for copying, right? They were incredibly meticulous. They were so concerned because what they were copying in their minds was the word of God. Now, as a result, after they made a copy and determined that they had done it exactly word for word, they would take the old manuscript and they would destroy it because they didn't want somebody finding it and then making modifications or editing it and corrupting the word of God, so they destroyed it. The result is we don't have a lot of ancient Old Testament manuscripts because the scribes in that day believed they needed to destroy the old copies and just keep the new one, right? So the result is our oldest manuscripts, up until just recent times, our oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament uh, were from about 900 AD, okay? The Aleppo Codex and the Cairo Codex, Probably none of us even knew where Aleppo was until about a year ago. Now we all have a sense of where Aleppo is. Aleppo Codex and Cairo Codex, about 900 AD. Full copies of the Old Testament. So, now now stay with me. I'm going to do this in reverse since I'm I'm facing you. But we had had copies from about 900 AD. So that's about 1,000 years old. Am I moving correctly? I've got to reverse my timeline here. Okay, Um, the Old Testament was written, remember Moses wrote about 1446 B.C., that's when he began to write, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Malachi wrote about 480, 
Right? Our oldest copies were from 900 or BC. Our oldest copies are from 980, right? So they're about 1,300 years in between the writing of Malachi and the codexes that we had of the Old Testament. So how accurate were those codexes that we possess that were 1,000 years old? Right? 1,000 years old at the time we were writing. Well, 1947, as you may know, Dead Sea Scrolls were uncovered. In 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were uncovered. The Dead Sea Scrolls were written from about 300 B.C. to about 100 A.D. That is in the time of Jesus. So 300 B.C. to 100 A.D. So about 1,200 years older than the oldest copy we possessed. Right. So you've got Dead Sea Scrolls from about the time of Christ and before. And you've got the Aleppo Codex from about 900 A.D. The question is this. Over 1,200 years, how accurate were the copyists? When the Dead Sea Scrolls were unearthed and men began to look at these scrolls to see how accurate they were, they compared the Aleppo Codex and the Cairo Codex with the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you know what they discovered? They were accurate to the word 95% of the time. Okay, literally to the word 95% of the time. Now, have you ever done that game where you whisper something in somebody's ear and it goes around, right? I promise you I could start that right here and by the end it would just be complete and utter jitterish, gibberish, right? But these men over the course of 1,000 years, kept the text accurate to 95%. That is stunning. Why? Because they believed they were copying the word of God. So they were exceptionally careful. The New Testament was copied extensively. Right? We have more copies or fragments of copies of the New Testament than any other ancient document by far. Now, this is a little hard for you to see. I recognize, especially if you're sitting in the back, the slides will be online if you want to go find this slide. Uh, This summer we did a a series on the doctrines of the Bible, big ideas of the Bible. Blake covered bibliology. He got online and found this uh, visual illustration, which just demonstrates that not everything on the internet is junk, right? This This to me is probably the best visual illustration comparing manuscript evidence of ancient documents. Now, if you can't see the back, let me, let me describe what's going on here. The big yellow circle represents the number of New Testament manuscripts, which is about 24,000 okay, manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts from the New Testament. We've got about 24,000. Uh, the smaller yellow circles represent other ancient documents. Homer's uh, Iliad, Homer was actually the most widely read ancient author. His Iliad, we have 643 copies of his work. So you've got 24,000 copies of the New Testament. Next closest ancient document is Homer's Iliad. You have 643. So you have tens of thousands more copies of the New Testament. If you go down to the bottom, you see Thucydides, we actually only have eight copies. Herodotus, there are just eight copies. Notice also the second column is the years between the writing of the original and the earliest surviving copies. So the originals of the New Testament were written there in the first century, and our oldest surviving copies are within 40 to 70 years. In other words, within a single generation. So we probably have version number three or four of certain portions of the New Testament. On the other hand, Homer's Iliad, there's actually 500 years from between the time that Homer wrote and our oldest surviving copy. Go down and look at Thucydides and Herodotus, there's 1,300 years between the time the original was written and the oldest surviving copy. In other words, there is more document evidence in the New Testament than any other ancient document by far. They're not even close. In addition, we have hundreds of translations of the New Testament that we can work back from, backwards from to understand what did the original text say. We also have 
tens of thousands of quotations from early church fathers where they wrote in Greek, the Greek text, text into their own works. I mean, there, there is no document that compares at all. So the question is this, how accurate are those copies? And how accurate are those quotations, right? We looked at the same question with the Old Testament. How accurate? I'm going to put it in perspective. Homer's Iliad has 15,600 lines of text. Of those 15,600 lines of text, there are 764 lines that have variant readings in the different manuscripts. That is approximately 5%. So about 5% of the text, there are variant readings. In the New Testament, there are about 20,000 lines of text. And there are only 40 lines that have variant readings. That is two-tenths of 1%. Two-tenths of one percent. None of which affect doctrine. None of which affect doctrine. And nearly all of the variant readings were accidental changes. Now students, for you in particular, this is critical that you understand these concepts. Because your faith will be attacked while you are at the university. Your faith will be attacked by friends and by enemies. It will be attacked by peers, and it will be attacked by professors. And what they will try to do first is undermine the source of authority in your life. If you go to the Word of God to understand the nature of man, the nature of God, the nature of salvation, and this is how you direct your life, this is what creates your worldview, this is your source of authority, and everyone does have sources of authority on which they base their lives, if that's your source of authority, then I guarantee you, I promise you, what Satan is going to try to do at some form, in some form or fashion in your life is undermine that source of authority and say, no, the text is not reliable. The Bible cannot be the word of God. It is not trustworthy. You need to understand this process. The word of God actually is trustworthy. The text is reliable. Were mistakes entered in by copyists? Yes, they were. But we have so very many manuscripts It's not like we have 95% of the New Testament. We actually have about 110% of the New Testament. And the job of textual critics is to go back and determine how did those errors accidentally occur so that we can move back to the precise original text. So let me give you some illustrations about how the errors actually occurred. Let's start with the Greek unsealed script. When the Apostle Paul wrote, he wrote in Greek all capital letters, all capital letters, no spaces between the words, and no punctuation. Right, this is a fragment from Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, verses 9 and 10. Right? So, all capital letters, no uppercase, lowercase, no spaces between the words, no punctuation. So, I want you to imagine how difficult that would be to translate right? or to understand if we wrote to one another in that way. Let me give you just one simple illustration. Uh, What does that actually say? Probably some dispute, right? It could say, I sit here, exclamation mark, right? It could say that because, remember, no punctuation. Or it could say, is it here, question mark, right? And the one who copies afterwards has to determine where where do the word divisions occur, what's the punctuation. That's what's required. There were also visual errors that occurred. Right? A scribe would look at a word and his mind would tell him he saw one thing and he'd write it down, but it wasn't actually accurate. 
Illustration of this from Mark chapter 14, verse 65. Some began to spit at him and to beat him, and the officers received him, Elabon, or they threw him, Ebalon, with slaps in the face. Okay, there's a variant reading on Mark chapter 14, verse 65. In other words, we did not invent the concept of dyslexia. Right? Flipping letters. They, just, they looked at it and flipped a letter. Or sometimes it's called dytography. They would add an extra letter in. Just mark it down. Were they exceptionally careful? Yeah, but once in a while... Errors like this would occur. There were also auditory errors. To increase efficiency, there were times when schools of scribes would sit in a room and one of the scribes would read and the rest would copy so that they could make more copies a little bit more quickly. This happens to us all the time. There or there, if I say it out loud, which is it? Great or great? Well, I can only determine based on the context what I'm hearing, but if I'm really focused on just inscribing it carefully, I may not be paying attention to flow of thought and context. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 is an illustration of this. Having been justified by faith, faith we have peace with God, echomen. Or it could be, let us have peace with God, echomen, with God. Now, in modern Greek, echomen and echomen are pronounced exactly the same. We don't, in fact, know how the ancient Greeks in the first century pronounced these. We just know that it was nearly Identical. One's an omicron and one's an omega, but they are pronounced nearly the same. And it changes the translation from we have peace to let us have peace with God. Let's look at the Hebrew text for a moment. Okay, these are two Hebrew letters. Okay. On the right is the letter dalet, which represents the sound D. On the left is the letter resh, which represents the sound R. Uh, all that distinguishes these two letters in some scripts is that little tail. That little tail. So remember when Jesus said, not the, uh, the smallest letter, that's Yod, or the smallest stroke, that's the little piece of the letter, will pass away until all is accomplished, right? That, that's the smallest letter there on the left, the letter Yod, that's the smallest piece. And that smallest piece is all that it distinguishes between a D sound and an R sound in certain Hebrew scripts. So sometimes they would look at it visually, they just, they would quickly glance over and put down a ratio instead of a dollar or a dollar instead of Arish. Now here's a, cop, uh, a copy of a um, text from Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. So I know, I know a few of you know uh, some Hebrew out there, uh, but for the rest of you who don't, let me help you understand the, the chicken scratch that is before you at this moment, right? The, the little dots and dashes and stuff underneath the bigger pieces of chicken scratch, right? The smaller pieces down at the bottom. Those ones at the bottom, those are vowels. Those are vowels. When the ancient Hebrew authors wrote, they didn't include vowels. They just wrote consonants and expected the person who'd come along behind them just to know what vowels should be inserted. Well, uh, the Hebrew language suffered and languished for a while. It was later resurrected, and the Masoretes put in the vowels so that people wouldn't misunderstand the word of God. But they had to sometimes guess what vowels should be included, right? Because you can have the same set of consonants you put a different set of vowels in there, and it makes a completely different word, right? Let me illustrate. T-R-S-T-S-F-N, what does that say? Well, it could say a whole bunch of stuff, right? Trust is fun. Right? Trust is fun. We believe in trust. We like trust. But if you know the context, you might say, no, he's talking about Tristy, his wife, right? That's T-R-I-S-T. Tristy is fun. That's true. Now, further complicating things, sometimes they would just omit the B verb, right? 
to be. They would just omit it because it's just implied. You can just understand it. So they just omit the verb altogether, which this is the most likely translation. Tristy is so fine, right? We just omit the be verb. That's what the S is. Tristy is so fine, right? So uh, you're asking yourself, Brian, what's the point? <laughs> Here's the point. There's actually a serious point. The serious point is this. Trust the source. Men and women, trust the source. What you have in your hands is the word of God faithfully transmitted through the years, through centuries, through millennia, faithfully translated. And you have the privilege, since you speak and read English, of being able to look at multiple translations and compare. Multiple translations based upon original Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. It's the word of God. Garden protected by God for you so that God could speak to you in your home and in your workplace, your family, and with your friends. God could speak to you the word of God. And we live in a culture where everything new is better, right? We're always, we, we want change for the sake of change, and if it's new, it's better. But you know, it's just not true. Sometimes newer isn't better. Sometimes new actually isn't new, Right? Uh, if you doubt that, uh, we, we studied Ecclesiastes last year. Go back and read Ecclesiastes. Study the book of Ecclesiastes. New is actually not always new. There's nothing new under the sun, Solomon says. There's nothing new. You know, when I actually, when I moved down here from, from New York to Texas, do you know what I was wearing? You know what I was wearing? You, you probably don't because none of you grew up with me. I was wearing straight leg jeans cuffed with Sperry topsiders. Uh-huh. That's stunning, isn't it? Yeah. So I got down here, and all of my, uh, you know, bell-bottom wearing, boot wearing, Texas native friends made fun of me. They mocked me because I was wearing straight leg jeans, the precursor to skinny jeans, right? I was wearing those and Sperry topsiders. Now all of those same friends are still wearing their Wranglers, but with topsiders, Sperry topsiders, right? Everything it just all comes back. I was just a man ahead of my time, right? <laughs> but I, I promise not to go back. I'm not going to do skinny jeans for your sake. There's nothing new. And sometimes if it's new, it's not better. My kids insisted that I had to upgrade the operating system on my iPhone. It stinks. It's terrible. I've never heard anybody say, oh, this is such a great upgrade. I don't like it at all. It's not better just because it's new, right? Some things should, in fact, stay the same forever. Isaiah wrote, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. If I'm in a storm and I'm trying to navigate to the shore, I do not want the lighthouse to move. The word of God is that lighthouse, right? It is sure, it is steady, it is unmoving, it is unchangeable. It is the word of God delivered to you. I want you to read with me again chapter 3, verse 15. 2 Timothy, Paul says, From childhood, Timothy, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Maybe this morning uh, you have arrived and you've never actually read the word of God. Uh, I will tell you, if you don't own a Bible, just reach in that rack in the pew in front of you and take it. It's yours. It's a gift. You've never read the word of God. So you don't know what's actually in the word of God. Paul says what's in the word of God is wisdom. And it's a wisdom that can address your greatest problem, which is you need a relationship with God. 
And you can't have a relationship with God except through Jesus Christ. And so what the word of God says is this. By grace, you can be saved. That is, delivered from the penalty of your sins. By grace through faith. You just reach out and say, yes, God, I believe. It's not of yourselves. It's not something that you can earn. It's just the gift of God because that's who God is. He's generous and he's giving. So he gave you his son to pay the penalty of your sins and remove that debt. And when you believe in him, that debt is removed and you have life that lasts forever. Paul says, Timothy, let me take you back to this fundamental truth. The word of God is trustworthy. It gives you the wisdom that leads to salvation. It solves your greatest problem. That is, you need a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you, if you have never understood that truth this morning, just believe. Cry out to God and say, God, I believe. I believe that I do have sin. I believe that I have done wrong. I believe that that does create separation, and I need to know you. I need relationship with you. The moment that you do, you have, do believe you have relationship with God. And what God begins to do is he begins to change you and transform you and remake your life. Right? Church, that's the value of the word of God. That's why we're a Bible church. That's why we, we teach the word of God week in and week out because the word of God is living and active and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces into your very heart and convicts and challenges and transforms. Listen again to verse 16. Paul says, all scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every Good work. My prayer for us this week as I was reading through this text again and again and again was simply this. God, stir up again within us. It's a hunger to know your word. To to be in your word, to meditate, to memorize, to let it wash over our minds and our hearts and change our affections and our desires and even our behavior. Father, let us love your word again. Close with this quote from Abraham Lincoln. He once said, I believe the Bible is the best gift that God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. I've been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd stir afresh in us a love for your word, a longing to know what it is you've said to us, that we wouldn't leave this, this love letter just lying on the table. That we, would, that we would pick it up and we would devour it. And Father, we know that you honor that time that we spend, that your spirit takes your word and activates your word in our hearts and minds and moves and changes us. I pray, Father, that even this week we would be directed afresh from your word. And Father, for those of, you, uh, uh, those of us here this morning who may not know you personally, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be speaking to them. I pray that they would pick up the word this week. They would... They would read and understand that you love the world so much that you gave. You gave what was most valuable to you. You gave your only son. I pray, Father, for some that this would be the week in which they understand they move out of death into life. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for showering us with every single gift that we could possibly need. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Enjoy the word of God this week. We'll see you next week.